in a series on the harmony of the Gospels and um, just trying to, uh, on regular occasion, explain what that is in case somebody's new to Emmaus or you're here for the first time. Um, the harmony of the Gospels is all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, laid out as the events transpired chronologically. So uh, you have all of the events happening in real time. Sometimes Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the same event. Sometimes just John. Sometimes, you know, it's a mix of those. And we're just working our way through the Harmony of the Gospels. It's going to take us a while. Uh, this is the 22nd week of our Harmony study, and we're, we're not even a third of the way through the Harmony. It's going to take us a while, but it's such a worthwhile endeavor to see the ministry of Jesus, to see the life of our Lord lived out, and to understand it better as his followers. So um, Jesus' message was the good news of God's kingdom. We all agree on that. But the kingdom is an inverted kingdom. It's not a top-down authoritarian. Well, okay, let me, let me say this. It is top-down, and it is authoritarian, because Jesus is the authority. But it's not a heavy-handed authoritarianism. See, we, we hear... Part of the problem is we hear very little about God's kingdom in the church today. We hear about heaven, some. We hear a little bit about hell, but we rarely hear about God's kingdom being accessible to us here and now through Jesus. When the kingdom is mentioned in many churches, it's usually in the future sense. It's something that is still a far ways off. It's still coming. And that's partially true. The kingdom is now, but it's also not yet. We're experiencing kingdom living. We're part of the kingdom of God. We have experiences with the Holy Spirit who lives in us that are related to the kingdom, but we haven't experienced the fullness of the kingdom. We're going to. If you're a born-again believer, you're going you're gonna to live in the kingdom with God. It's amazing to me. So I think it's, it could be reasonably argued that the the reason that the Christian community, I believe, in the United States today is so weak and anemic is that we've lost our understanding of the kingdom. This is a kingdom. We, we've thought that becoming a Christian only means that our sins are forgiven and we get to go to heaven when we die. And those are great things. But, but too many people think they're just saved to sit and soak. That's not why Jesus saved us. We've defined the Christian life as primarily being relevant for the afterlife. But what the Bible tells us is that the Christian life is one of entering into and living under God's redemptive rule right now. He's the king right now, and we are his subjects. And if that's the case, then the Christian life is this exciting, incredible adventure that we get to go on with our Lord. It's amazing to me. We're, we're a group of nomadic wanderers. This, you, don't, you understand, this world is not our home. It's not our home. So we, we're seeking to live under God's rule today. We want our lives as subjects of God's kingdom uh, to be over our homes, for his authority to be over our workplaces, uh, over our communities, over our churches, and at work in us. So when we arrive at the understanding of what it means to live under God's kingdom, then we're ready to live the abundant life that Jesus promised. When, we when you describe it like that, when you describe the kingdom like that, it's, it's compelling and it's exciting. But that's not, unfortunately, it's not how many people in the church today think about the kingdom. There, there are, maybe you know some of these folks. Maybe, maybe you've been one of those folks. I, I was for a while. 
But there are many people in the church today who say, yeah, I'm born again. But their spiritual lives are boring and anemic. They're anemic. They're not in the Word, um, not sharing our faith. It's like so many Christians have just forgotten the kingdom part of being a Christian. Or maybe they were never taught it. Paul, Paul had a lot to say about the kingdom. Listen, in, in the letter to Colossians in chapter 2, Paul says in verse 13, he says, you, you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. And yet God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Paul says, by canceling that record of debt that we had racked up, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. One of the legal demands was death, that we would be separated from God for all eternity. He said, God has canceled that record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. And he's not talking about Caesar and Pontius Pilate, the rulers that he put to shame. He's talking about Satan and his kingdom and the demonic realm. He put them to shame. So pay close attention to this. Paul's telling us that this kingdom is an upside down kingdom. We, the king's subjects, I assume all of you are, we rebelled against his rule. And so far, so, so has it ever been since the beginning of humanity, since our first parents, Adam and Eve. The result of our sin was death and eternal separation from God as the right and just punishment for our rebellion. And yet God did something unthinkable. He did something unthinkable. He sent his one and only son to die in our place and in the process made us alive together with him. He forgave our trespasses. He canceled our debts. He disarmed our enemies. He gave us eternal life. And all the things that we deserved, he took on himself. And all the things that were rightfully his, he gives us when we become his adopted children. That is an upside down kingdom. It's an upside down kingdom. This, I hope that this is not a completely new concept for you this morning. If you've been with us as we've read through the Sermon on the Mount, you've already seen some of this. You know, Jesus said many things that were counterintuitive to the culture and shocked his hearers. You're talking about good Jewish people who'd been in the Torah their whole lives. They were shocked when Jesus would say things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Like, what did he say? What? In the Beatitudes, Jesus declared several different types of people as being blessed or happy. People that the culture at that time would have assumed were cursed and despised. These are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek and the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Jesus said, if you want to keep your life, you have to lose your life. He told his disciples not to worry about their lives, where they're going to get their food, what clothes they're going to wear, but instead to trust their heavenly father who knows what we need and cares for us. And so we've read through these passages together. So, so we're not going to look at all of these again, but I, I just need us to remember what's happening beneath the surface at all times in the gospels. Jesus is preparing to give his life for humanity. Jesus' greatest demonstration of this inverted kingdom comes at the cross. The creator of the universe, greater than everyone but the Father, gave up his life for his creation. And rather than coming as the conquering king that so many expected the Messiah to be and that the world would have understood, 
He came as the suffering servant we read about in Isaiah 53. It's hard to imagine a greater role reversal or inversion than the creator of all things dying on a rough Roman cross labeled a criminal. Yet that's exactly what he did. That was a, and that was a longer than usual introduction to the message this morning, but I just really want to set this up thoroughly for us as we get into the text before us this morning, uh, because the kingdom is an inverted kingdom, and, and we just really need to see that and embrace that this morning. So if you're in your harmony of the Gospels, it's section 75, and that is um, Matthew 11, 2 to 19, and then the parallel passage is Luke 7, 18 to 35. So what we're going to do is read both of those passages and then uh, a little bit of commentary. So <clears throat> Matthew 11, 2 to 19. Now, when John heard, John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. So what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of, of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. They say, look at him. There's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So let's get the parallel passage here, Luke 7, 18 to 35. And these, these parallel passages are really, really, really similar. Uh, not a lot of overlap here, but verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. This is John the Baptist. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And so he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. The poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended on account of me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What was it you went out into the wilderness to see? 
a reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed, dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing that live in luxury, they're in king's courts. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born among women, that's everybody, by the way, there's none greater than John. Yet the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then, Jesus said, shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? Well, they're like little children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist came eating no bread, drinking no wine. You say he's got a demon. The son of man comes eating and drinking. You say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So let's go back. Let's go back. At this point, John the baptizer is in prison. And information is being passed by word of mouth. Eventually, the news about Jesus' miracles had reached to the ears of John, who was imprisoned in, in one of the palaces of King Herod. The Jewish uh, historian Flavius Josephus tells us that John the Baptist was imprisoned in the palace of Machaerus uh, in the Antiquities of the Jews. Uh, and, and, and by this time, John had been in prison for probably between 12 to 18 months, which is a, is a long time to, to sit and languish in prison. Remember that when John was born, when we started this series, his father prophesied by the power of the Holy Spirit and announced that John would go before the Lord and prepare the way of his coming. That's all the way back in Luke 1, right? And, and so maybe in the beginning of his imprisonment, he believed that this was just part of the mission, part of the divine cause. But I think at this point, you know, like a year to a year and a half into prison, um, it, it could easily be the case that he's starting to have doubts and, and second thoughts about this. He had to be asking himself and the Lord, why, why am I still in prison? When is Jesus going to inaugurate the kingdom? And when am I going to get out of here? I got to be there for that. I want to be there for that. And the longer those questions persist, we could all easily see how he might arrive at the question. Ultimately, well, is Jesus even really the promised Messiah then? He's starting to doubt. It's clear that he believed Jesus was the Messiah and God, since he was the one who said he existed before me. Remember back at the baptism? John, John would not have declared that Jesus was the lamb who takes away the sins of the world if he wasn't convinced of that fact. But after hearing about the miracles Jesus was performing, John was apparently more confused than ever. And my guess is that his greatest question is, when are you going to come free me? When are you going to come let me out of jail? So he sent two of his disciples to Jesus to get an answer. And in response, Jesus did not preach a sermon about belief or, or stop and even pray with the disciples for John's release. Jesus just went on performing miracles. And Jesus tells the two disciples of John to go back to John and report what they have seen. Look at that, Luke, Luke 7, 22. Go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. 
And, and, and so make sure you catch the words here um, from Jesus. Go and report to John. The miracles, by the way, are for John. These miracles are uh, they're primarily, I think, for John's benefit because he's the guy having doubts right now. Jesus is not coming to rescue John the Baptist from his situation. John's been appointed to die as the first martyr for the gospel. And this is reinforced by what Jesus says in Luke 7, 23. Blessed is the one who does not take offense on account of me. Now, that doesn't sound too bad unless you're the one on death row, right? See, John the baptizer is wrestling with the eminence of his own demise in the service of his king. Maybe he didn't know that that was part of the deal. I don't know. I don't know where his head's at totally. But we know that it was Herod uh, the Tetrarch, the sub-king, if, if you know your history in that region, uh, he was the, the Tetrarch of Galilee under the Roman Empire. And he's the one that imprisoned John the Baptist uh, because John the Baptist preached against and reproved Herod for divorcing his wife unlawfully and taking Herodias, the wife of his brother uh, Philip the first. It's all kind of shuffling of marriage happening in the, in the royalty at that time. And so here's John the Baptist standing up and saying, that's not right. God's not, God doesn't approve of that. That's a sin. And now he's in prison, right? So here's John the Baptist standing up for righteousness and then suffering because of his stand for righteousness. And on Herod's birthday, if you know the story, Herodias' daughter, whom, again, the historian Josephus identifies as Salome, danced before the king and his guests. And her seductive dancing pleased Herod so much that in his drunkenness, he promised to give her anything she asked for, even up to half of his kingdom. She's just a teenage girl. She's overwhelmed. She doesn't know what to ask for. So she goes to her mother and asks, well, what, what, what should I ask for? And her mother said, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although Herod was appalled by the request, he agreed and had John beheaded. But remember again, Jesus' assurance, Luke 7, 20 to 23. The disciples of John came to Jesus and said, John, John want, he sent us to say, are you the one? And then, and he, and then the, Jesus says, tell John, all these things are happening. The kingdom is coming on earth. I've inaugurated the kingdom and go, go tell him all these good things. And tagline, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. In other words, John, the kingdom is coming even as we speak, but your role in it has come to an end. Can you handle that? Blessed are those who are not offended on account of me. And after this, Jesus shifts gears from John the Baptist to the people of Israel in the text. And we see this in Luke 7, 31 and 32. He says, so what shall I compare uh, the people of this generation to? What are they like? Well, I'll tell you what they're like. He says, they're like little children sitting in the marketplace calling out to one another. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. Jesus describes his contemporaries as being uh, like little bratty children who want all the attention and all the applause. Look, mom, look, look what I'm doing. Look what, watch me every moment of the moms. Like, oh no, I know I've been there. <laughs> I love you. I see you. Go play outside, right? We've all, we've all been there. You know, these, these, these children, this, this mentality, we played for you 
and you didn't dance. We We sang a sad song. You didn't weep. Why aren't you playing by our rules, Jesus? Why aren't you doing everything we demand of you, Jesus? We have expectations of our Messiah and what he should be like and what he should do, and you are not meeting our expectations. The sheer level of audacity in the, in the people, is, it, the obligation being placed on Jesus is not birthed in the spirit, in the, but in the flesh. This is their flesh, right? And, and so they wanted a Messiah who would perform for them. They wanted a Messiah who was going to give them everything they wanted. They didn't really want the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And this is a scathing indictment on the culture of Israel and their understanding of what the kingdom is supposed to be. And you look at it to this point, you go, man, that's bad. Yeah, but it gets worse. It gets worse. Verse 33, John the Baptist came eating no bread, drinking no wine. You say he has a demon. Son of man comes eating and drinking. You say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Now, not only is there a judgment from sinners upon those whom God sends, including every prophet in the Old Testament, but but especially on the forerunner and herald of the king, because they're going after John the Baptist, right? And they said, John the baptizer has a demon, even though he was sent by God and worked God's wonders and spoke, uh, God spoke through him to the people. He baptized many for the remission of sins. But, but then you think, well, that's bad enough. But what they say about Jesus is worse. They call the very son of God a glutton. That's a person who gorges themselves and overeats and has very little self-control. And not just a glutton, but a drunkard. That's somebody who becomes intoxicated with alcohol as a regular practice. You're saying the son of God from heaven is a drunkard and a glutton. Jesus says John the Baptist was above bar in all of his conduct. John the Baptist fulfilled the role of the final prophet in his Nazarite vow, his careful behavior. Though he spoke forcefully, he never violated that. His role was to be the herald of the king, announcing his coming. And Jesus came teaching the people. And his disposition was lowly and meek. Man, he's, it's just, Jesus is just a, a blue-collar tecton. That's the Greek word for a skilled worker, skilled builder. He was a blue-collar guy from Nazareth. Ultimately, Jesus' indictment on his contemporaries as a whole was, you guys haven't been willing to actually listen and receive either John the Baptist or me because of your expectations and your demands. Essentially, he's saying, we can't please you folks. That's a powerful indictment. And, and as before I go into the next section, I just want to I want to say to us as 21st century American Christians, we stray into that sometimes. Individually, corporately, we need to be careful that we don't let our hearts go in that direction. I have these expectations of what Jesus is supposed to do for me. He's the king. He does what he wants. He does what is good. We need to, we need to take a step back sometimes here. So section, the next section here, Matthew eleven twenty to 30. Listen to this. This is Jesus continuing on. It says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin! 
Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than it will be for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord in heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus denounced the cities where great miracles had been performed. So the question we need to answer is why? Why did he denounce them? Now remember that at this time, uh, this is in the same vein as what we've been talking about already, right? Those, those who witnessed these great miracles enjoyed the miracles. They even marveled at these miracles. This was incredible. They saw these things take place and they were just blown away. But what they didn't do was they didn't repent and turn to God wholeheartedly as a result of the miracles. They saw them and they were like, whoa, that was amazing. Do it again. How many of you have three-year-olds? Two, two and three and four-year-olds. It's a favorite phrase of little kids. Do it again. Do it again. And they don't, they don't have an off switch. You'll be there for 36 hours doing it again. Do it again. You're like, oh, I'm so tired. Right? That's just, it's, it, it's the same thing. Jesus, do it again, Jesus. Do, do it again, Jesus. So those who witnessed these great miracles enjoyed them. They marveled at them, but they didn't repent. They didn't turn to the one true and living God. So Jesus juxtaposes these cities. He takes Chorazin and Capernaum and he juxtaposes it versus Tyre and Sidon. Here's a contemporary cities. These are contemporary cities in Israel at that moment versus historical cities that were destroyed that came under the judgment of God, right? And he's comparing and contrasting. So he says Chorazin and Capernaum existing now, Tyre and Sidon, saying that, those ancient cities steeped in sin would have repented and turned and believed if they had seen and experienced what national Israel was now seeing and experiencing. And, and, and while time doesn't allow us to deep dive on Tyre and Sidon, I would just encourage you this week to read Ezekiel 28 uh, about the ancient king of the city of, of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, we're, we're more familiar with the names of Sodom and Gomorrah, so we'll just unpack that reference briefly. Um, if, you, if you've never read that part of the Bible, maybe this will be helpful to you, but God sent two angels to Abraham's tent and then down to the cities of the plains. And these angels had a specific task to determine whether the sins of the Sodomites 
were equal to their reputation because God wanted to destroy them. And, and so they're looking for 10 righteous men in the city. And they have that conversation with Abraham, right? Um, they're looking for 10. Well, they, they whittle down to, man, we could just find two. Well, maybe if there's just, if there's just one righteous person in the city, right? If, you, if you're familiar with that, that passage. But uh, up to this point, Lot, he seemed to be a good candidate. But when you read the text, you find that uh, his offer of his daughters to the, to the crowd, the, the lust-filled crowd, can only be seen as an act of wickedness, not righteousness. Righteous fathers do not offer their daughters to, to a crowd of men. The townspeople, however, reject his offer, and they turn on Lot. They call him an outsider who interferes with them. They threaten to do worse to him than what they were going to do to his guests. So, so they try to break down the door. And just when it seems like the mob is going to break in and have its way, the, the two angels intervene and they pull Lot um, outside. They strike the townspeople with blindness and they drag that family out of the city. And now the angels have all the proof that they need that there are not any righteous people in Sodom. And so they tell Lot of their intentions. They're going to destroy the city, right? He's given ample time to you know, contact anybody, any family members. You can bring them with you. And, um, and he takes the opportunity. He actually, in the text, tries to persuade his sons-in-law. They don't take him seriously. And so the family is so reticent to leave what has become comfortable to them. We just get that, right? They become comfortable living in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so... The family, that has to be, they have to be dragged out of the city by angels. And even then, Lot's wife looks back at the destruction longingly for what she had known, She's longing for that. And the angels had clearly said, don't look back. And so she's, she's turned into a pillar of salt. And Jesus calls out the hypocrisy of the contemporary Israelites who are standing in a place of judgment over these historical and decisive judgments from God. See, the prevailing attitude of the Israelites of that day was, well, we're not that bad. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah, that was bad. We're not that bad. We're not like those people. We're not like Tyre and Sidon. We're good people, Jesus. We're good people. And looking back in judgment had impaired their ability to see themselves clearly. They were always looking down on everybody else, looking down on other nations, looking down on other Jews, looking down on people in the past. And so they, they elevated themselves in their own eyes. According to Jesus, they weren't just as bad as Sodom, they were worse. And had those sinners of antiquity seen and heard Jesus, Jesus himself states they would have repented. This is nothing but a damning indictment of Israel at this moment in time. But lest we stand in judgment over them, which would be ironic because then we'd be walking in the same self-righteousness. Jesus has Peter uh, issue a warning to us in 2 Peter 3. Listen to what Peter says. He says, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. That's what's going to happen to the universe, a heat death, fire. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then Peter says this, he says, but don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but get this, he's patient towards you. 
I don't know about you. I am longing for the day of the Lord. I'm longing to see Jesus. I'm longing to see the clouds part and hear the, the voice of the trumpet say, come up here. I'm like, woohoo, let's go. And yet, don't overlook this. Like God is not slow to fulfill his promise the way we count slowness, but he's patient towards you, towards humanity, not wishing that anybody would perish and go into hell for eternity, but that all should reach repentance. But the text says, Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Do thieves telegraph what they're going to do and when they're going to do it? No, it's going to be a surprise, right? It's going to be a shock to people. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be living lives of holiness and godliness waiting for, and then catch this phrase, hastening the day of the coming of the Lord? Wait a minute. Hastening, living, holy, living godly, and hastening. How do we hasten? How do we make it speed up? How do we get it here faster? Share the gospel. Share the gospel. Tell people about Jesus. Preach the gospel. But according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Praise God. I can't wait. But until it comes, until we're taken out of the way, preach the gospel. So here's what I want to say to you this morning. Um, just by means of application of these texts to our lives, uh, I want to I stop and just define greatness in God's kingdom. I want to make sure we understand what greatness looks like in God's kingdom. Jesus said that the great ones of the earth rush to exalt themselves. That's not the greatness of God's kingdom. Self-exaltation is not the greatness of God's kingdom. They love to wield dominion and power and control over those around them and under them. But life in the kingdom of God does not operate in that way. It's an upside down kingdom, right? The very antithesis of the kingdoms of this world. And, and nowhere is this more obvious than in matters of power and leadership. Jesus says that those who want to be great in God's kingdom will never achieve it by worldly methods. Never. You'll never get great in the kingdom of God by worldly methods. Greatness in the kingdom is only achieved by serving others, not yourself. That's how you get great in the kingdom. Jesus was the greatest servant in history, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He would soon perform the greatest act of servanthood in the history of mankind by giving his own life on the cross to pay for the sins of the whole world. He's the suffering servant. As a result, Paul called all members of the church to serve one another. Paul saw servanthood, and you can read it in the New Testament, as a path to being like Christ and a path to true greatness in God's kingdom, in God's estimation, not man's. And then here's the great thing. It's, it's open to everyone. It's open to all of us, not just church leaders, everybody. We follow the path by seeking to please an audience of one, by humbling ourselves before the Lord, by taking, just like Jesus did, taking the form of a servant and becoming obedient to the Father's will, whatever it may be. That's the path to greatness in the kingdom. Paul gives us very helpful, practical guidance 
um, when he writes to the Philippian believers in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. I'm so great. I'll do this for you because I'm so great. Don't do that. That's ugly. Um, he says, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. And let each one of you look not only to your own interests, and that's just our default, isn't it? I just want to make sure all I got all my stuff. I got, yeah. He says, don't, don't, don't let, don't be looking to your own interests. Look to the interests of others. Care about others as much as you care about yourself. In doing this, we put love into action. Love is not simply a feeling. It's not an emotion. Love is an act of the will. It's a decision. Love is when we seek the good of others through our own actions, not just our words. This is the problem in Matthew 7, 12. They were just, no, 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 no. yeah, God, we love God. No, they love themselves. Love is seeking the good of others through our actions, not just our words. At that time, Matthew 18, 1 to 4, I just think this, this speaks to greatness in Christ's kingdom. In Matthew 18, 1 through 4, uh, it says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus. And they asked him a question. They said, hey, Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Pick me, pick me, right? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a little child. Little, the word is paideon in the Greek. Little, little child. He set the child in the midst of them and he said, let me just tell you guys something. I'm telling you, unless you become like a little child, you will never even enter the kingdom of heaven. We're not talking about who's greatest, guys. We're talking about just getting in. Unless you become like this little child. And whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's what greatness is. Man, I just, I just take God at his word. Dad said, He's going to feed me today. What do I have to worry about? Right? Just the faith of a child. I love it. I love it. In the society of Jesus' day, did you know that children had no rights? Can you imagine how shocked they were when Jesus brought a little child among these important adults and disciples? Jesus recognizes that the enemy in the kingdom is pride. Our enemy is pride. Pride is antithetical to Jesus' kingdom. His kingdom is not based on human ambition and pride. We can't make any claims. We can't insist on any rights. We can't come up with any demands. Greatness in Christ's kingdom is humility. It's humility. That's number one. Here's number two this morning. God uses foolish things to shame the wise. He uses foolish things. And, and for this, I just... I just had to pull in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31, because again, Paul just says it so much better than I could say it. Listen to what Paul says about this truth, this, that God uses foolish things to shame those who think that they're wise. Listen to this. He says, the word of the cross, the gospel that we preach, the message that we tell people, it's foolishness. It's folly to people who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. So Paul asks this rhetorical question. He says, so then who's, where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the things of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through its wisdom, but it pleased God through the foolishness, the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Do you understand that? He says, stand up with the great orators and talk about theology. No, preach the gospel. Just preach the gospel. The, God, the, the word of God, the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Just preach the gospel. We preach to those, we, we, we preach to save those who believe. For He says, Jews demand a sign. They want to see some miraculous thing. And, and Greeks or Gentiles, they, they want wisdom. They're always seeking wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God, the foolishness of God is much wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is so much stronger than men. And then he says, consider your calling. Just think about it. Consider how God has called you. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. This is the, this, by the way, if you, if you need a boost in your self-esteem, this passage is not it. I'm sorry to disappoint you this morning. You're not going to get a self-esteem boost out of this. In fact, it's meant to humble us. Let me, let me give you 26 again. He says, just stop and think about, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Thank you, Jesus. You're building my self-esteem. No, not, not, not many of you were of noble birth. <laughs> it gets worse. But God has chosen foolish things. Wait, Jesus, are you saying one plus one is two? I'm foolish. Yes. Yeah. God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame those who think that they're strong. God's chosen what is lowly and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so no human can boast in the presence of God. When we get to heaven and we're standing there on the glassy sea, and all of the and all of us are throwing casting our crowns before him, nobody is gonna say, Hey, you remember the time I did that thing for you, Lord? I'm here. We're all going to be just not even able to look up, just in awe of his presence so that no human being can boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, if you want to boast about something, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. As God's own blood-bought children, we have no other option but to fully embrace and believe this upside-down paradigm. It's everywhere throughout the text of Scripture, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's there. The plain reality of this laid bare on the pages of Scripture is so obvious when you've seen it, uh, but, but seeing it only comes by the Holy Spirit and, and a deep love for God's truth and His ways. So not only do we choose to see it in the pages of this God-breathed Bible, but ultimately what we're embracing is Jesus' kingdom is an inverted kingdom. His kingdom is an inverted kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus proclaimed is an upside-down kingdom. Just, just using the phrase kingdom of God, uh, Jesus made the Romans nervous. 
they heard the word kingdom and they got nervous. Are they going to revolt? No, no. This is a different kind of kingdom. And by defining God's kingdom the way Jesus did, he also made a lot of Jewish people angry. He was good at making people angry because he loved the truth. He loved righteousness. Those who favored revolution, they thought Jesus wasn't patriotic enough. How on earth could God's kingdom come by turning the other cheek, overcoming evil with good, and praying for those who spit on you? That doesn't make any sense. The people of Jesus' generation couldn't imagine God's kingdom coming without a sword in their hands drenched in Roman blood. Throughout his ministry, Jesus challenged the Jewish people to give up their revolutionary agenda, to topple Rome, and to give themselves to Jesus' kingdom agenda. See, the kingdom Jesus promised was a kingdom where forgiveness ruled, and a kingdom where all the people were invited to participate in God's love, a kingdom where social status was irrelevant. (laughs) It's a kingdom where the meek and lowly are considered important, and it's a kingdom where we're not all constantly jockeying for position and power and status because we're loved and accepted by the one true king. I love my friend and mentor, Jan Hedinga. He loves to ask the question, what will you do in the kingdom with the kingdom frame of reference that Jesus taught? Jan asks the question, he says, will it be another interesting tidbit or truth, or will it be the kingpin for you? Will you see it as a component or as the motherboard? Will you, this concept that properly aligns all the other biblical ideas, is it the big deal to you or is it just a little piece? See, the kingdom was the biggest of big deals to Jesus. It seems reasonable to credit him with the best mind in human history. I don't think any of us would disagree with that. He was, after all, God in human flesh. But we somehow seem to forget how smart he was. As a result, we well-meaning, well-intending Christians try to improve on his message. We take the liberty to reframe the gospel to make it more palatable for people. Instead, what we need to do is embrace the reality that he's the best communicator in history. And the message that he gave us is ageless, and it's the standard for us when it comes to sharing the gospel. We ought to be saying what he said, the way that he said it. I think that's, I think that's one of the things we're missing as the church. It's time for the church of Jesus Christ to rediscover the power and effectiveness of the kingdom message of our king. I believe that the result of such a shift would be far more powerful and a life-changing gospel that would be effective. We need to preach a gospel that releases the power of God into salvation, according to Romans 1.16. We need to preach a gospel that produces uh, healthy, growing churches filled with Christ followers who are wholehearted. We need to guard our expectations of God's kingdom as much as John the Baptist needed to, or we will grow disillusioned if we're not careful. You know, God's kingdom is not a political kingdom. <laughs> Let me say that again, because nobody got upset. God's kingdom is not a political kingdom. Some, someone in an old Baptist church in the deep south would say, preach, preacher, preach, right? It's not, it's not an American kingdom. And some of you are going, oh, I, I got to chew on that for a little bit. But it's not. It's not. <sighs> It's not a Democrat kingdom. All right, pastor, you climb out of that hole you dug. Woo! Yeah, it's not a Republican kingdom. You got to understand, you got to realize and embrace the, the kingdom of God 
will not be ushered in by human effort or conquest. It only comes in God's way and in God's timing. And God's kingdom is unconventional even for us. We get wrapped around our our post, whatever it is, whether it's politics or preference or whatever else. And, and Jesus said, no, I've got, I, I got this. I know what I'm doing. You just, you just be faithful. It's not for the wise and learned. It's for the little children. It's for the least of these, those with simple faith, those who simply just take God at his word. Just take him at his word and believe and then seek to live that out. So Jesus' kingdom is about knowing the Father and the Son, and he gives you rest from your burdens. He gives you rest from the heavy weight of the law. He gives us rest for our souls. Amen? So let's just stop and thank him. Lord Jesus, you, uh, there's nothing to improve upon. <laughs> there's nothing for us to add to or take away from in what you have given us. We just need to obey faithfully. Lord, would you help us? We get so easily distracted. I want to go this way and that way. I want to dial this in or improve that thing. Or maybe uh, Jesus probably maybe meant to do better over here. Lord, forgive our arrogance. Forgive us. Set before us the path that you want for us and, and teach us to walk in faithfulness all the days of our lives, for however many days that we have left on this earth, Lord. And may they be few. May you come soon. We pray that you would come soon. Lord, until you do, help us to be found faithful. That is our prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen.